Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are especially delighted to be joined by John Andrew Bryant, who's re recently written this book published by Lexham, A Quiet Mind to Suffer With, Mental Illness, Trauma, and the Death of Christ. Um, I think this book was first mentioned on our podcast because when Matthew Lapine's Logic of the Body was released, uh, he had mentioned that this was kind of in process. Uh, maybe that was a couple of years ago. And so I've been anxiously awaiting this book uh, ever since, particularly because there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of Christian writing that uh, maybe I should add with the qualification that's very good <laughs> on the subject. Oh, of wow. <laughs> But uh, 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 on the subject of maybe there's exceptions I'm unaware of, but on the subject of something like OCD that really, uh, especially the, the the mental illness and the and the trauma related to uh, what is what is an increasingly common experience in the modern era, uh, which is that of OCD. But before you know, I don't want to I don't want to uh, foreground too much information. I want to get right to to John here. John, one of the things I uh, really found fascinating in this book is the um, Maybe you could tell me if I'm missing missing this, but like there's almost a translation of what you typically hear uh, maybe in the therapeutic world into almost kind of a phenomenological experiential language. So am, am I hearing correctly when you talk about um kind of, you know, you know instead of saying OCD, you, you speak about the realm of ceaseless cognition. Uh, and then you, you speak about the kind of body waiting to the world, to, or body waiting for the world to end. And, and I'm hearing body keeps the score and that sort right. of thing. Yeah. Am, I, am I detecting uh, rightly that there's a kind of translation of what often just kind of is may, maybe maybe less potent therapeutic language. Not that that's a bad thing, but into uh, uh, into something that um, uh, uh, is more textured uh, uh, in your experience. I'm yeah. curious what what the what that process was for you or how how that trans if there if i'm detecting a translation and how that helped you yeah i think learning to um you know i work with people where technical words aren't aren't the most helpful and so finding ways to say what a thing is in a way that also makes sense with lived experience is uh, really crucial uh, i think to my ministry and my work and for myself i was like how do you tell somebody what OCD's like. You could say it's this or that. I said, well, what about a car alarm going off in your car that's really loud and obnoxious, but isn't really telling you much because that's just car alarms go off all the time. Mm. And and people were like, oh, you mean like that? I said, yeah, something like that. I said, have you ever been in a wind tunnel? I said, or, or been uh, going upstream, walking upstream of something and feel that tug on you that makes it impossible to kind of step forward? They're like, yeah. And I was like, well, that's kind of what it's like to live with this siren, that I call it. It's, um, but it's almost. Um, I think a translation is 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 a great word for it. Uh, the symptoms are there. How to find language that's both helpful, simple, and provides a map. I, I really wanted to turn my experience of an affliction into a kind of spiritual adventure, almost like a. Like a, like a picture book, spiritual adventure. You you make your way away from the siren. You walk through the wilderness of um, uh, the symptoms of the illness itself without the compulsions. You make your way to sort of promised land. I kind of remapped, uh, in some ways, Israel's journey uh, mm -hmm. uh, with in kind of in terms that made sense to me. Out of pride and lies, 
which is where the siren lives and the stronghold of it through trouble and loss, which is just dealing with it as an affliction rather than um, submitting to it, the siren's uh, commands. And then trying to make some headway towards being present in my life again, which is the promised land, I think, for people with mental health. Is how do you get back into your life, even if it's painful? How do you get back? How do you get back there? And uh, those were the kind of retranslated storybook words I found for the journey and the experience. Hmm. Yeah, very good. Let me ask you. I so I read the book. Um, I think Joe mentioned um, we have a mutual friend in Matthew Lapine. And uh, I spoke with him after we had him on the podcast to go over logic of the body. He's a wonderful man. I met him at a ETS and we exchanged numbers and we started chatting um, because his work, logic of the body, really emerged out of personal experiences that he was trying to sort of map theologically, uh, <clears throat> but with using the literature, but also phenomenologically, kind of like what you're doing. Um, but to hear his story, about how where the work what the work emerged out of really contextualized a lot of uh you know the words in the book and so maybe you can tell us a little bit as much as you're comfortable with about when this started for you um like has this been something that you've sort of become aware that that was there your whole life or did, was there an event that happened to sort of trigger it uh, or did you just sort of recognize it the older you got? And so maybe you can tell us a little about just your personal story, because that's a, that's like what the book is. It's just about you as a person. Well, you know, I didn't, I don't think I knew what was going on until I was 30. Hmm. I think I knew I was anxious. I knew that there was propensities towards obsessive behavior or OCD, but the problem was my compulsions were inside my head. So the, I didn't, you know, I would check things. I would do quirky things that sort of like the, um, that gets flung out about, oh, I'm so OCD. And what they really just mean is I'm, I'm quirky and I need to, and I, I'm particular about some things. And I, I wasn't exhibiting those. I was, I was just in my head all the time, ruminating about thoughts that were not voluntary, but were there anyway. And and trying to manage worries or concerns that I knew were bizarre, but somehow seemed very credible or that my brain was telling me were, were credible worries. Hmm. And so what had to happen was, I, and I, you know, I joke with my friends is like, you can manage something until you can't. Yep. And um, I think in, in college, uh, I could manage my OCD in lots of ways. Uh, uh, one, I mean, hyper ruminating can make for great papers, make for uh, thorough, thorough readings. It can make for really, I mean, there's parts of it that are still great. I, I sort of let my OCD run wild when I'm writing because it's so, it gets me places that I wouldn't be otherwise. But when it came to managing the concerns and uncertainties of everyday life, it became incredibly, incredibly maladaptive in ways that I didn't know how to manage except by ruminating which just got me to a point where i was in my house and couldn't leave my house hmm. and also had intrusive thoughts that my desire to make them go away was just making them more bizarre and upsetting to me and so that's when i was like okay i can't leave the house um these intrusive thoughts won't stop and and they're bec because i'm getting upset my body's getting upset they're making the thoughts 
expulsions are making them worse. Uh, it just became a crisis point, and so I just said, I you know I gotta I gotta like let's let's go where you go when you don't know what's going on. Let's go to the let's go to the funeral. And um, so because the intrusive thoughts were upsetting and nightmarish, you know, when you tell people what's going on, they're like, well, we need to make sure you're not psychotic. And it wasn't until maybe 24 hours into my psych ward state that they were like, we don't think you're psychotic. We think you have, like you said, you have OCD. And I was like, yeah, they think we think that that's what's happening. We're sorry that this scared you so much, but it's actually just your disorder. And then I had to spend five years. I think I wrote the book, took me three years to write the book, sort of remapping chaos, which is what it felt to me. The number one time thing people tell me mental illness feels like, regardless of what it is, is the word chaos comes to mind. Is what they always so it was chaos for me, learning how to map it and say, okay, here's what I think is the obsessions. Here's what the came to be. Here's what happens when I took forever to get sorted out, and still sorting it out is taking. There's stuff I would have. I thought I was the master of OCD by now. Like, oh, that's OCD. That's not really in my head, and I'm still finding out. Dang, man, I've been listening to my brain on that point or this thing for years, and and thought I had it all figured out. So still learning. Yeah. But yes, I guess the point being a crisis point made it so that both the, the severity of the illness was unveiled, but also began the journey to map out the case chaos of it, all the theological land that provided, hmm. I think ultimately was healing. Uh, it was just really painful. Yeah. The, that's fascinating to hear. Um, um, part of the reason this book resonated with me so much is I, I identify with qu quite a bit of it in, in very personal ways. And similarly, uh, I'm 41 now, but I don't I don't gather that even the basic uh, uh, sense of what was going on in my head, just the the very idea that I'm, you know, that I'm in a uh, uh, always in my head, just noticing, in fact, being able to notice, having the language to notice, in fact, that maybe there's a, a kind of a lack of attachment to the world that you're kind of up here and the world itself is kind mm -hmm. of grayed out and getting out of your head into the world. Uh, uh, took a lot. Didn't happen. <laughs> uh, and and the older I've gotten, you know, I'm 41 now, so it's been about 10 years since I've even I've even had that in my head. But what you just said deeply resonates with me. That um, you discover all the time. Uh, uh, you discover all the time ways in which um, uh, your 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 habits, your your mode of relating to the world is rooted in a in, in a very just a long held habit of, of, of moving almost exclusively through the mind, uh, as it were. One of the things that mm -hmm. really uh, helped me in the book, uh, I must say, uh, and, and in fact, even even came at just just a good time for me, was your discussion of the part of what I gather you're trying to do is to to, to you talk about this thing called the realm of ceaseless cognition, you know, which is which is effectively living in your head and in these thoughts mm -hmm. that are going around and you can never get out of them. And of course, if you're a wordy person, as you can tell that I am, what you try to do is to meet you try to meet the discourse in your mind and try mm -hmm. to guide it. You try to win it and you try to persuade it. But of course, you mm -hmm. can't actually keep you can't actually keep up. And one of the things that I think you you, you you do in the book that's really effective because you have that going on the kind of realm of ceaseless cognition you have this 
this uh, this prop that you call the sirens, which are kind of the the, mm -hmm. the screams in your head. You might say the the mm -hmm. accuser plus whatever you know the anxiety, whatever that's screaming while you're trying to think your way out of it. And part of what you what what I think is so helpful for people who struggle with this in the book is that you try to identify modes of orientation that are outside of that. In other words, you're you're kind of helping mm -hmm. people understand your instinct is going to be to try and use tools from within here uh, to to combat con to combat the screams and to win whatever's going on in the spiral. Mm -hmm. And part of your whole book, it seems to me, is to say you actually need to have and and, and you use the word understanding. You actually need to have this this pinprick of light. <laughs> This very, very, very basic, small, it's the smallest piece of orientation uh, uh, that really is outside of all of that and, mm -hmm. and, and, and that, that relativizes all of that. And I'm reminded of, um, uh, you know, when you when you st I'm sure you're a you're a, a theologically educated person. So I'm sure you've heard of these, you know, these people trying to imagine kind of the ancient Near Eastern cosmos, right, that you have kind of the the death waters above, you have the death waters below and you have like death on every side. And creation is almost like this mm -hmm. canopy that holds at bay, <laughs> that holds at bay the death waters that if if God's word didn't hold back the waters it would all just come mm -hmm. swooping in. And, and as I was reading what you were saying, it's almost as though you were portraying a, a, a mode of cognition where the death waters can be all around you. It's not that they go away. Uh, it's not that the screams are fully gone. It's mm -hmm. not that the realm, the, 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 the spiral is gone, but there is a way perhaps to have something quieter in a way, a, a very small quietness that is in its mysteriously louder in its own way than all the screams, uh, yeah. uh, something like that. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that's uh, it, it's an amazing, um, I'll say rendition or riff or translation of what I was saying in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had to I had to figure out if there was if trust was the same as thoughts and feelings, and not that there wasn't a relationship there, but was were my thoughts. Where if I had bad thoughts, was I then a bad person? Was could they so overwhelm me that I did not have a self? And what was a self? And so going back to the scriptures, finding, and I, you know, someone told me it was a very Lutheran book. This idea that by hearing promises, yep. trust is resurrected in a person who is outside of thoughts and feelings. Not that he doesn't work with, but that he's outside. He's his his reality is is outside of thoughts and feelings. Um, I, I, I used in the book this, um, uh, I think, I forget the movie, uh, it was uh, 1917. It was the book about the, uh, it was the movie uh, where it follows two uh, soldiers in the First World War, and right. they're making their yeah. way, and they get, they get caught in a mine, and, um, and it's collapsing all around them, and there's a, there's a gap, there's a chasm, and uh, one person's blinded, the other person's on the other side, and everything in him, all thoughts, all feelings, everything he's hearing, is telling him don't jump and his friend says trust me jump and and i think those sort of leaps that we make by hearing promises are are sort of have more to do with the self ultimately than yes than um than thoughts and feelings that are ultimately not not that they don't tell us things certainly sometimes they do uh, situate oc my brain just creating upsetness for me that that's 
for a long time. But ultimately what I found was um, there is a way to live in such a way that thoughts and feelings, uh, my tr I develop a healthy relationship with them by not handing over my trust entirely to them. And for me to enter into that discourse with OCD thoughts is, is to already lost. As soon as you start talking exactly. with them. It's an unwinnable game. You're, yep. you're already in the quicksand. Exactly. But learning to hear it and say, how do I, my, my joke is everyone knows the only way to leave a haunted house is to walk out of it. If you sit there and punch every ghost coming at you, there's just more ghosts. There's more, there's more horrors. And really what you do is you, you find a banister that leads you down the stairs and then you walk out the door, but yep. learning to do that every day by hearing promises. Uh, and I had to sort of, okay, you know, what is scripture doing when it, it, it scripture, what is, is it trying to give me a guidebook for, re, for living? I said, no, it, scripture wants to reveal Jesus to me as someone who can be trusted mm -hmm. and, and trusted because he died and rose again, trusted because his mercies, his forgiveness and, and his company are present in death and resurrection and, and present by his means of grace that makes the, the power of his death, death and resurrection effective in the human heart to resurrect trust. And I was like, oh, my gosh, these these categories of faith are actually really helpful Yes. for people trying to make their way out of their head. If we can just remap it so that faith isn't creating shame, but actually is giving us that little corner of quiet to say, you actually begin here mm. from here. We walk it. We walk out. We walk out of the haunted house. Mm. But it's a daily. Yeah. I, walk, I wake up every day in the haunted house. I got to make my way out again. But yeah. Uh, but but I do know I do know how to follow the breadcrumb trail better than I did five years ago, right? Like there's, it was a difference. You know, yeah. I, I say to people sometimes the difference between one and two is one, but the difference between zero and one is infinite. Uh, <laughs> that's great. And, and yeah, I, think, yeah. I think that that's what it feels like to have even that. I think if you have OCD, any any orientation that helps you realize this this actually can stop, like not stop. That's the wrong way to put it. But you can actually have a life while this is going on, that's not this. Uh, and I think that, um, yeah, that's incredibly profound and helpful, I think. Yeah. yeah. So there was a story I didn't, I wish I could, if I have a moment, I just, I wish I could include it in the book. It's Kurt Vonnegut's son, Mark Vonnegut, wrote a book mm. about his bipolar disorder. And he wrote that he's a doctor and he says, and, and part of his bipolar was having some signs that would we would normally associate with schizophrenia, but can also be apparently part of, Bipolar, which that he would see every day he would walk to work and he would see uh, Abraham Lincoln, Wonder Woman and the Hulk across the street. And, and they were they were beckoning him to come to them. And he knew that to follow to go that direction was to, to give in. And he said, I look at them and I say, uh, I'm sorry, but I have things to do today. And then he turns and heads towards heads towards work. And I think that's the best possible relationship I've found to the OCD thoughts and feelings that I know aren't real as I'd look at him and I'd say, Sorry, I got things to do today. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta hit this. Way. Anyway, that was a little story to. No, to that's, that's wonderful. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned shame. I want to talk about that for just a second. <clears throat> I have a, I have a, someone very close to me who um, has recently started to in, experience uh, pretty severe intrusive thoughts, uh, and when this person started texting me about it. Um, cause I, your book actually came out at a very critical point in my, actually, I got your manuscript. I didn't get your book. It was before it was published. And, um, it was at a 
very strange part of my life where I was just starting to experience the, so I had my first panic attack and went to the hospital because I thought I was dying of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And then it just kept happening every day. And then I started to talk with my doctor and they're giving me supplements. But anyway, I was having these intrusive thoughts. I didn't know what to do with it. And then I read your book and I remember I was on vacation in Georgia when I read the part about you waking up uh, and feeling the sunlight on your skin. Uh, and that was like the first time where you're like, there's some, like, I'm going to, things are going to be okay. It was like when you were starting to emerge out of like the blackest fog of the, of the, of the, of the episode, um, which I started crying and I broke down and my wife is like, is everything okay? I'm like, it's so beautiful. <laughs> uh, but So this person uh, that's close to me was, has been texting me and I said, you know, one thing that I've tried to do is just recognize one thing and that's that Jesus loves me that's it that's it and Jesus even loves me with the intrusive thoughts that I have so he doesn't like love me except for that and it's like well I love you but you're really going to have to clean that up for me to like really love you right because this is the way we think Kelly Capick wrote a book um, a couple years ago called uh, you're only human where he talks about evangelicals have this relationship with Jesus where it's like Jesus is kind of like our older brother at the party, which is why we get in, uh, but he doesn't really like us. <clears throat> and um, that's been something that I have to, you're talking about promises, but for people that are experiencing these sort of intrusive thoughts and they feel shame about it, like, oh my goodness, I had this very blasphemous thought. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that I'm a blasphemous person and is my subconscious really the thing that I actually am that's escaping from underneath? Uh, what is it that, like, is there a, uh, I know it's the recognition of sort of objective promises that you're talking about, but what is the first move to sort of snap that, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I had, I remember being one day so overrun with them. I just was like, they were like rats clinging to me and talk about that. And they cling to you, and the cling is just that unclean. I am unclean because of these thoughts. And I think the first move, I you know, I, I, I for me the said, what does this mean? You know, I think that's that's the key. Shame has an interpretive function. This means I am bad. This means I am. Uh, this certainly means I am. I'm unclean. This means I am. Uh, I am. Now I have lost honor. I have lost regard in this world with myself because these things cling to me like this. And finding out that the intrusive thoughts and that the, the magic that the therapists tell you, everyone tells you, just how do you get there? Is once you realize they don't mean anything, you can move on. But the first problem is that we trust them. To, that we trust that these thoughts are telling us something about ourselves or about our real heart. We all think, oh. I wonder if I, somewhere in the corner of my life, I actually really am this bad. And I just remember thinking, how can the Lord's mercy and these horrors inhabit the same person? Yes. Which is, I know the Lord loves me, and yet I am experiencing horrors. And how, how can this understanding inhabit that same thing like, make and for me i just kept going to the psalms about waiting you know what am i doing when i am not 
arguing with an intrusive thought, not even trying to make it go, which is type of arguing to say, my brain is providing horrors that are un unwanted, un non-voluntary, and yet there they are. And the stillness to not make them go away or to fight them off, for me, was that stillness of faith. I was like, man, is faith this thing where you don't try to make it right? And I think that's all the Christian's doing with OCD all the time. I knew, Let's make these bad thoughts into good thoughts or let's get them out somehow. And I'm thinking, but if by nature of this affliction, this is unchosen, what if, what if it's possible to be completely in the right, righteous, just by trusting that this isn't true and isn't something that you are creating and that it'll, the fog of it will burn off, but how to sit there in that and say, all right, the good Christian in me wants to fight it off but fighting it off is somehow tangled up in pride that says I can make these things go away. Mm. And what if the Lord wants to actually say the trust is that it doesn't mean anything. It, it doesn't mean anything about you. And that's where I think I found this weird. And I don't, how do you, it's like, I just remember in the psych word specifically, the Lord said, stop defending yourself and go home. And I not like a verbal Right. word to me but i was reading the gospels reading the psalms and i just had this sense that i did not have to take a swing at every intrusive thought coming my way and that the lord's word would take care of even the most blasphemous things the lord's word at the cross had taken care of and i could trust that by not engaging in a compulsion which i think is what i wasn't understanding there was thoughts i was having on the movie screen of my head that were not voluntary part of the affliction. And then there was my contribution, as you were saying about joining the discourse, arguing back, fighting. I didn't have to do that part. The thoughts were going to be there, but I didn't have, I didn't have to take a swing at them. I could, I could walk through the fog of it or just sit and see that they didn't get to win. They didn't overrun reality, mm. but that is so incredibly painful. I don't know how people do it who don't, I, you know, I both feel like faith is can be an enemy to the mental health journey and, and the best friend, because if you're sitting there thinking this makes me unclean before God, this makes it's like, oh, no, we got to unwork that. But if you're sitting there, and you're thinking. Come at me, bro, like I, you know, I stand at the foot of the cross, this this, you know. I know this isn't something I'm creating, and I know the Lord's got my back on this and mm. and I'm just going to sit here and. And then you just see the fog gradually disappear and you're like, oh, that was the answer. Was, yeah. And, and, and that's hard because it's all, again, I, I, you know, I'm thinking, is that how really how it works, John? Is that my OCD is like, is that, did you get it right, John? Is that really yes. how you get out of there? <laughs> yeah. yes. you know, like, your, your OCD uh, doesn't allow you get out to get out of the research and development phase of its own cure. You know, you have to, you have to stay there. Right. Uh, right. One of the things that uh, I do for the organization Dale and I are a part of, uh, I teach at Davenant Hall, but the main the main focus of my own academic work is on the question of, of kind of what is modernity and interpreting modernity. Actually, the, the book I published with Lexham came out just a couple months uh, before yours did. Uh, and uh, uh, one of my friends recently said something to me I found really profound, which was, Joe, I wonder if modern people are as psychologically sick as our ancestors were physically sick. 
And the more I've kind of read people who have interpreted, even for the last hundred years, even somebody like Herman Bovink, even somebody like uh, C.S. Lewis, when they look out at the modern world, the common diagnostic of just kind of post-industrial life is this living in the frenzy and especially living with a with a with a relationship to kind of frenzied clock time where we never slow down where there's a million moving parts and and, and i've wondered if you know you know uh, uh, relative to the to this kind of material if there's an argument to be made that, that the the frenzy in our heads like what we're doing to our heads is creating this machine that is moving with all mm -hmm. all of these balls we're juggling of sorts and one of the reasons this is significant then is that i i think i think these things are far more common <laughs> than people realize like there are extreme cases but the the that tendency of of us to kind of have a detached relationship to the world where it really does take quite a journey of, of health a, a journey back into reality to even feel like things are real <laughs> or something like that to even sense that the world of, of this place and even a moment that a that a moment of time has a kind of fullness as opposed to a a thing i'm just pushing through like this, like I'm pushing through mm -hmm. everything, bits of data, bits of moments, bits of people, church. <laughs> uh, there's something, in other right. words, I wonder if like OCD in one sense seems to me to be almost a symptom, uh, uh, almost a symptom of the modern world. And yet it's also uh, perhaps uh, in as much as somebody has a, a bad case of it, this is a very hard world to live in uh, uh, for somebody in the world. <laughs> because the amount, of, the amount of just sheer data inputs in a day when you're in that discursive spiral is really astounding. And I, and I wonder if that, 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 that kind of resonates with you. Cause I, th I think that we're in a, we're in a moment where people who struggle with these things, there's, there's the world is not helping you. Yeah. <laughs> the world yeah. is, is helping you get worse in a way. Yeah. It's the world is, it's like this weird thing where it's like the world creates, uh, creates the problem problem that blames you for having it there's like a weird um reminded me of uh uh the gamble the gambling sign uh here's harris casino here's this casino by the way if you have a gambling problem a little thing on the thing yeah. and it's this thing well actually everything in, in the casino is designed to 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 turn you into an addict and then once you develop an addiction it becomes your problem and um yeah. i it, you know this world is not created uh for the anxious mind, um, so much, so much of my experience with people of my generation, particularly, is so lonely, so little trust in any institution outside of, you know, their own little, maybe a little group of friends or a little group of sub-interests in certain things, and uh, a total trust of thoughts and feelings because there's very little commitments outside of thoughts and feelings that would mitigate or put that trust in a helpful framework, mm. or put those thoughts and feelings in a helpful framework how how did we lose so much uh, yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not one of those people who's like our generation's the worst but i was like man yes. how did we lose how did we lose trust with every institution how did we um how did our world get so small and get so overwhelming that it's really just uh, our thoughts and our feelings and then and yet we're bombarded by a world um how did we lose friendships uh, why is you know i, I I, I, I'm so incredibly, my mind is so incredibly relationally tied to just small personal things um, that I can forget the wider idea of like, how did, you know, 
when I was nine, why, why did I think it was a good idea to just play video games all day? Like, why, why would, why did my parents make me? And they did. Like, I did band, I did basketball, I did all the stuff. Right. But there's still the sense of like, what, what did we lose? With, it's like our world became incredibly small, isolated, and in its isolation felt overwhelming. Uh, how did, I don't know. I, I resonate with the question I, and I have no idea. Um, it, you know, it is an interesting question and something Joe and I talk about like all the time. Yeah. It's this thing. Uh, which is to say it's talking about everything all the time because it's connected to all the things, right? It's like, what's going on? Um, Jordan Peterson uh, came out, superstardom, political controversies, cranks out this book, 10 Rules for Life, resonates mm -hmm. deeply with millions, millions of young men that are isolated, lonely, detached, uh, held together on the internet by sub-interests, groups of people that are interested in these things that are not very popular. And then they hear this guy say, like, go clean your bedroom. And they're mm -hmm. like, like, okay, this is the way for a happy life. <laughs> uh, and I do think that there's something to that. I don't know. So in my own experience, I guess I'll just say that, um, I struggle with anxious feelings my whole i never sit still so my body is constantly moving constantly constantly and my mind is constantly moving and i find relief when i am in high energetic situations that demand all of my mental powers uh be uh sort of focused on a solution solving things so what i do for a living uh, when people ask me what I do for a living, I say I solve problems. That's all I do. But being in the middle of that, I feel very comfortable. It's the moment when I sit down and then and like the the thing that I'm that's try chasing me catches up and whoosh, and sort of hits me, and then I'm like, oh, and then the body starts freaking out when you try to chill. Yeah. Um, but in the moment of like bearing responsibility and keeping the mind focused on something other than the self, on objective responsibilities that demand your creative energies to solve, has been in some sense at least dealing with the symptoms for me. If it's not a solution, and I think the only solution is like the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's where, right. where I agree. Uh, but at least in my everyday algorithm of existence, I have found relief in bearing responsibility, even though it kind of makes it a bit more difficult to deal with on the back end, mm. if that makes sense. Do you, so my question is, do you think there's something to um, a life that um, sort of tries to get outside of itself by taking upon itself more responsibility or do you think that's probably good for some types and I'm, I'm not talking about a sort of blanket solution we're not going to solve ocd and anxiety on the podcast mm -hmm. uh, but do you think that there is something given the modern world and the world that we live in uh to taking on more responsibility mm -hmm. as part of our mental health uh taking yeah. care of ourselves i think of those uh, stories where you know whether or not it's it was it was moral to do so, you know, two nursing homes, one nursing home, they gave all the residents a goldfish, or a, a small pet, and um, 
and the other ones they didn't. And the, the group that had something outside of themselves by which they needed to, I would say, sacramentally offer the self to something outside the self by which to, uh, uh, you know, share in life with, even if it was a goldfish, taking care of a goldfish, lived a lot longer. Um, I don't know how many years, but it was a, it was a substantial experiment. And I forget the name of it. I, it was in a freshman psychology class, uh, you know, sometimes OCD would always play a trick with and, and so I had to reframe getting better as um, uh, what do I have now that I didn't have then five years ago I have trust I can trust in the Lord I know how to if I don't have I know where to get it I need to hear again. and then this strange word I never thought I would get back is my attention and I believe spirit gradually leads our attention out of ourselves and then the question was um something i never had was the intention to be given to the moment at hand mm -hmm. and that the self can be offered to the world in such a way that it is served the lord is revealed even if it's just calling calling mom back uh, because it's your mom yeah. you know like making soup because someone's sick um yes to say, um, what do, how do I, uh, what is my way back into the world? Well, I need my trust and my attention need to somehow be pulled out of my head so that the, I can offer myself to the world. In some ways, that's this weird thing of like, you get yourself back by giving yourself to the world. But I think it's deeply biblical, obviously. But to say, my best moments were to say, I knew in, mom in more moments than before, what to offer, how to offer. I felt more offered to the world. Yes. Um, and I said that I could pay attention when someone was talking. That was new. It took years, but it was there. I said, I am my gosh, I can pay attention to you <laughs> yes. while you are talking to me. Yeah. It, it is painful because my brain doesn't like it. It, you know, my body is some kind of figuring it all out because it wants to sit there and have me worry to create safety for it. But actually what I can do is I could, like, where is this? And so I was like reframing death and resurrection. I was like, I wonder if, you know, faith, hope, and love are these real gifts, but I wonder if by faith, I mean, trust, if hope, I mean, orientation, attention, or the leading of it, at least I can't promise we get it all back, but somehow my attention is being led. And I wonder if love's about, the agony of being given back to the world um, mm. in such a way that it's painful, but ultimately uh, is a partaking of Christ himself. And I started reading Hans Borsma, the sacramental tapestry of reality. Yeah. And I was like, man, I, it, it really matters to go swimming. It really matters to cook a meal. Mm. It really matters to clean my room. It matters in a weird way. Sacramentally, Jesus is there. It's in the mix in a way that I would not have any data any framework for five years ago to mm -hmm. say like I'm getting better because I'm more given, more rescued, more led, more given to the moment at hand than I was five years ago. And that's what recovery needs to mean to me uh, yeah. more and more rather than less and less. I don't know if that jives in what you're saying or, yeah. or even if you could still yeah. hear me if I'm cutting out. Oh, again. No, no, that's a, that's <laughs> very profound actually. Uh, very similar reflections actually in, um, 
I don't know if you've seen Joseph Pieper's little book, uh, Faith, Hope, Love on the Theological Virtues, uh, but he, who, <clears throat> excuse me, he has a fairly similar exegesis of kind of the significance of faith, hope, and love and kind of how they work out existentially in a life. It's really, I, I found the treatment. I just happened to have had to read it this last week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and you're also reminding me um, in the screw tape letters, I've had to read that for a, the youth group I'm, I'm, I'm helping, uh, helping, helping lead. Um, Lewis is real fascinating when he has the demons talk about humans. And one of the, one of the things that uncle screw tape says at one point is humans always, just as we forget that their bodies, cause you know, he, demons are disembodied for Lewis. Uh, they also always forget that their bodies, uh, and and, and, he, and Lewis encourages worm or screw tape uh, encourages Wormwood to sort of take advantage of the fact that uh, the, the human tends to live in his head and is forgetting actually that he's a body. And so, for instance, just a, uh, his placement of his body when he prays, you know, that sort of thing. That doesn't mean God doesn't listen to your prayers without that. It's just that you're part an animal <laughs> and yeah. and what you're doing with your body, like moving around and, 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 and keeping a space and that sort of thing has all of this impact on you, uh, has all this impact on you that's not, that, that's outside of the realm of cognition in a sense, even though it does, you know, from the outside impact the the, the realm of cognition. Um, one, one thing that in the book that I found especially helpful as well, because you talk about how part of the way out of it is there's a humility in the understanding of faith. And in fact, a very painful, a, a death, a, a death-like humility in a sense, as you as you rightly point out that uh, I don't know that you ever use this word, but it strikes me that part of what you're trying to identify in that realm of ceaseless cognition and the siren and all this sort of thing is that in some ways it's functional for us. Uh, my, my friend Jim Pachter, who's a, who's my counselor and, and Dale knows him real well as well, will often talk about um, um, this sort of thing is very functional for sinners. Uh, and you, mm -hmm. I think you even ask at one point in the book, does just kind of self-contempt and self-loathing even, I, I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't remember you using the word functional, but the question seemed resonant with, is this functional oh, yeah. for us in some way? Because, uh, Part of the pride, I think, of something like the realm of ceaseless cognition and whatever is that, A, you want to be able to be in control. And, mm -hmm. and B, part of the thing you actually do wind up having to say when, when you're slaughtered, <laughs> in a sense, by the act of faith, uh, is just to say, I'm also not really in control of how much of a sinner I am. Part mm -hmm. of the problem with the realm of ceaseless cognition is that you're trying to figure out, like, how much am I righteous and how much am I a sinner? Am I that bad or that bad? And in a sense, like I've been real comforted thinking about this with Paul's statement, I don't judge myself before the day. <laughs> what a boring question, uh, how bad I am or how bad am I not? Uh, because uh, because you, you can never exit that, but it's also to think about the self and, 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 I, and it's your desires in some sense. It's my desire to be on some it's my desire for the, an answer to that question to be this rather than that. Well, I'm only this much of a sinner. I'm this righteous. <laughs> that can kill you. Uh, I, one thing the book really mm -hmm. helped me with is that kind of desire can can, can kill you. Uh, and actually part of getting out of that is to, again, not uh, part of faith is not judging yourself before the day. It's, it's, it's letting Christ be your judge uh, and your evaluator mm -hmm. and in a sense yourself, you know, not I, but Christ in me, but then, Christ is giving you yourself back as well yeah. in that exchange. There's a weird, I remember my, we did a class on heresies in Sunday school and 
um, my wife said, the great the thing about heresies is that they make sense. And the, the hard thing about the gospel is it doesn't make sense. And she said, every here, and it's so this, maybe it was just this heresy of saying, every, the thing that says I can make it right or, or make it go away, or, or I talk about these losses that don't feel bearable. That's where self-contempt comes in, I think, as this functional apparatus to say, um, it's like this self-contempt, self-hatred is this sort of last stand of pride that says, I can clothe my get rid of self like that's the last way somehow i can make things right there's always this thing it says uh, i'm trying it's like this weird paradoxical dependence on self is that yes. maybe i can make it right by hating myself yes. and to say you even lose that you even lose the right to hate yourself you even lose this sort of last bulwark of the self to say well i can at least pour contempt on on me right that's something i get and the lord even takes that away and says you don't even get to judge yourself you don't even get to yes you don't even get that's and i think what i found with myself is i talk about the the cry of the soul and I, that's kind of weird language i wouldn't have used but i was like man there's these real losses the loss of honors is so hard on the, it hurts so deeply a person the loss of security so so profound such a profound loss and the loss of meaning and purpose this is so profound, such a profound wound. Um, and the pride that says I can make up for those losses is so deeply bonded with the losses themselves as to be indistinguishable. Right. And it's like the only the Lord's mercy can separate pride from from loss and say, actually, part of this is you trying to make it right. And part of it's just like the loss itself. Yeah. And I think that's that openness. If someone was to ask me, like, what's this book about? I would say now I said, it's, a, it's a book about grieving. It's a grieving book. It's a lament. Because in order to when I lost pride, I suffered more. I suffered in different ways. I suffered that loss of control. I, let lo I couldn't I couldn't create honor for myself. Now I had to wait for the Lord to clothe it with his righteousness. You know, I had to I had to let. I couldn't control outcomes now, or at least I had the ability to not actively try to control them with my compulsions. Mm. And ultimately, at the very end, it's like I couldn't even give my life meaning now. I couldn't give fulfillment to myself anymore by these compulsions. And I had to, and all those three were were grieving. It was, you know, it, it's not the main point of the book, and I, I wish I'd given it more time. Is mm. like, you know, the Psalms are so helpful. Cry out to the Lord for what you've lost. Otherwise, you're just going to hide it in some weird way with your pride or some other lie to say it's not there. But this sort of wild cry before the Lord of how are you going to make up for losses? Lord, how are you going to? And blessed are know? those who mourn. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, this is, again, uh, Dale and I's mutual friend, Jim, uh, who's actually reading your book right now. I, I'm sure he's okay with, with me saying that. He's like, whoa, sorry, there's a bee chasing me here. Uh, he's gone. <laughs> the devil. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, 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 Jim, Jim has a really profound story about a, a, you know, being transformed through, through struggling with same-sex attraction and even, even transgenderism after getting married and having three kids and suicidal and all these sorts of things. But kind of the beginning, his version of your story, the beginning of his his story was just learning to grieve. 
grief mm -hmm. was kind of the, the 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 piece that opened up uh, in a sense the rest for him and he's a, he's a counselor now and uh, uh, is actually actively working through this and I think that's uh, I've been talking to him in the last couple of weeks I think that's how this is resonating with him uh, is very much a, a a tale of grief in some ways and so um, I think that's very apt one last thing I'll say before we close out and then Dale obviously um, uh, whatever you want to say um, I really appreciate the the translation of kind of body keeps the score language. And, you know, you know, there's this famous book that, you know, everybody reads. Mm -hmm. now. It's like such it's like I, I guess I, the bestseller psychiatry books or something like that. And it's a very important book. The body keeps the score effectively arguing that, uh, you know, trauma is not just stored in the memory. You can even have a, a mind that's kind of functioning OK in some way but the body is in this hyper state of anticipation and sort of stores uh, uh, a sort of sort of stores in itself um, a worry and a, and, a, and a set of traumas that it's going to react to. And I, I believe the way you put it was something like the body that's expecting the world to end, if I'm yeah. remembering that correctly. And I thought that was such a powerful way to describe. I think that's such a powerful way to describe something that in a lot of our pedagogy, we're not very in touch with which is that maybe again, going back to modernity, and I think this when I when I think of seminary curriculums and, and even past the way that pastoral language is, is, is developed, very often we're targeting, um, we're, 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 we, we tend toward kind of algorithmic engineer mind kinds of statements, right? And we sort of like, you know, when we say like combat, you know, error with truth, it's sort of like a spreadsheet of things. Uh, and it doesn't deal with the it, it, it doesn't sometimes really get to the fact that for a lot of people, their very animality, <laughs> their animal, mm -hmm. in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, it really is in a state where it's expecting the world to end at any second. And it doesn't take mm -hmm. much for the body and then the body kind of shooting a million messages into the mind uh, to be in a state of hyper, hyper panic uh, effectively. Mm -hmm. and, and you can't. I think part of the profound thing there is then, of course, you can't just think that 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 mm -hmm. that posture of the body away because the body's the reason the body, uh, the reason there are reasons. Maybe that's just the way to put it. There just are reasons that the body is in that state of anticipation, and it's a long life of. And, I, and I'm I'm guessing this is what you're experiencing over the last five years, is it's that long life of rhythms that's slowly persuading the body. And mm -hmm. slowly getting the literally mm -hmm. like getting a dog from a junkyard, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. or something like that. Uh, slowly, slowly calming the pit bull down to become a family dog, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as it were, something like that. And I, I just that's really just me saying I find the description so helpful uh, in, in capturing an element of ordinary sanctification, um, ordinary sanctification that. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, in the way that I think a lot of people really experience it right now. And so really, I'm just just saying I, I found that I found that way of describing it very helpful and personally uh, extremely resonant and putting that kind of label on it, I think, gestures the imagination toward the toward toward the right orientation as well i think it's just a more weirdly i'm saying your your label is better than the one on the most helpful book out there <laughs> well i i read that book at a critical time maybe a year and a half out of two years out of the psych ward and i knew what he was saying was true the body keeps the score and I, there's a lot of things i you know i wish i would have picked up more from the thing but when he said your body is not the same after a traumatic experience and i don't know if he used this metaphor but he said in the same way if a storm blows through and knocks 
the lights off of, out of a house, knocks the things out. What is the storm? What is trauma? Well, it's the, it's the storm that came through, but now it's the house. It's the house that's different. And your body isn't talking to itself the same. It's not connecting to itself the same. And I just knew I was like so deeply grateful for that book because I was like, how do I explain to people that I'm 33 years old and my body is crying that I, because it doesn't want to get out of bed yeah. and the dread is so, is so powerful. And it's like, I met, it's like, I came out of the psych ward with a, certainly with a brain that was messed up, but my body was different now because it'd been so frightened by everything. It was such a break. And, and I could sit there and have the most rational day and, and, and um, Matthew Lapine's book was so helpful as well. Yeah. And my body, my body's just not convinced we're going to be okay, but I'm okay. I'm okay. I know it rationally. I even know if that, you know, that, that quiet, I know I'm okay. Body's not convinced. And so these rhythms, the slows and I think uh, Matthew Lapine said it best, just the slow cultivation by these rhythms of, you know, these sanctifying rhythms to steward the body. Cause I, I can't get rid of it. It's my body, you know, like what am I supposed to do with it? <laughs> right. You know, I can't, I could try to outrun it. I could try to, you know, but at the end of the day, I got to steward it. It's mine. It's broken. It's something happened. It's, it's yeah. healing. It's healing slower than I want it to. It's taking years. And, uh, but it's mine. And, and by faith, I could steward its healing better. Um, and, uh, but yeah, and I appreciate it because that was the piece I was like, man, trauma is so complicated, but at ba at a very basic way, it's that your body's not the same now. Yeah. And right. it's just not that something bad happened to you that you need to get over. It's like, no, you're, I'm sorry, but your body's not talking to itself the way it should now. And it's going to take time. And that yeah. was just helpful for me. I was like, so grateful for that book. And it is an intentional, I should have put them in the acknowledgements, but because there was aspects of his descriptions where I was like, yes. Okay. Now, how do I say it in my way? But I'm, that's what I mean. I mean that. Yeah. And, and, it, yeah. and, and the, the body that expects the world to end. Let the I, reader I I, understand. We, right. yeah. <laughs> I call him the stranger too. I said, I woke up with a stranger in my rib cage and there he is. Yeah. My body's just like, <laughs> you know, yeah. what do I do? Yeah. Well, I guess uh, I don't. I don't have much more. I uh, thank you. The last question I want to ask, but let me say thank you first. Thank you, brother. Thank you for writing the book, and I yes. thank God for your life, and I thank God that um, Jesus is a good brother to you. Uh, and then you know, keep keep pressing in the work you're doing because I think it's not. Joe was saying earlier. I wonder if this is more common now. I think that you know civilization is sort of mentally sick in proportion to our fathers were physically. And I think there's mm -hmm. something to that. Um, so we're going to need more good work uh, on this front. So people don't feel alone. Uh, but last question for you, and then we'll wrap it up is how are you doing now? How are things? Yeah. You know, uh, even just, even just this last few months, I'm at the October's the five year kind of anniversary of, of my mm -hmm. breakdown. So, you travel every year I travel through it, but with the book coming out and talking about it, it's, it's it, the, the, the whole experience, the, when it happened, the breakdown that was the impetus for the book uh, is fresh. And, um, but I, I have something I never had before, which is, I don't, I don't believe my mind as much as I did five years ago. Yeah. I have just an incredible, it's God. I know it's the Lord. I, I can feel miserable and still pay attention to my life. And 
that people in it can still be loved by me. Um, and I also know that things, the last, you know, anniversaries dust things up and then you just pass through them. So I would say it's been a hard, good thing to talk about the book. Um, but, uh, and I would say, I've just even just recently feeling like my OCD does not win, doesn't get to tell me what my life's going to look like is a, a vindicated reality more and more each day. And sometimes when it's at its loudest, I know that that's the best victory because it's, it's screaming, trying to get me back and me walking away from it. Is it sort of like the breakup, you know, like this bad breakup. <laughs> yeah. So it's been a really deeply good season, um, but it's, it's also been painful to remember. It's pain. It's still painful to remember. It's not hard to talk about. I could, I could, I could hang, hang with y'all all day talking, but when I remember how bad it was, it, it also just gives me an incredible compassion. Not that I'm a compassionate person by nature, but just suffering. The Lord's sorrows have to meet our suffering in ways that are a mystery to us to lift us out of them. I, to, if I didn't know he was the friend, my friend in this affliction, I don't know how people make it without a friend like that. Yeah. So yeah. I, I said to Christians, I say, the Lord wants to be the, your friend when your yeah. mind isn't. And, and I know that more than I did five years ago, which is the rejoicing. But to your question, been a hard month, been a hard month or two since the book comes out to have to, not have to, I'm willing to, but to go through it again. And even yeah. just in talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God bless you, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, go you. get the book. Joe, hold the book up. I don't think you did. Ah, I threw the book, but uh, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> I have to suffer with. Uh, look at that cover. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> look like that. <laughs> Pick it up. Check it out. Um, brother, thank you for your work. Uh, all right, everyone. Uh, as always, you can find uh, previous episodes on the Davenant Institute YouTube page. You can also find us wherever podcasts are downloadable. But uh, brother John, thank you, sir. And uh, Joe, I love you, brother. Love and you too, man. All right. See hey, you it was a it was a joy, guys. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely.